In this episode of Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska, Deb Horner accidentally picks up a hitchhiker who stubbornly refuses to leave her truck. I say, um, I'm here for my 815, but we have a little uh, an issue. And he says, oh, what? I said, well, there's a, um, a marmot sitting on top of my spare tire. First of all, he just looks at me, and I, I couldn't decide if he was incredulous, didn't know what a marmot was, both. Cat Betters discovers her car has suddenly transformed from a hearse into a rideshare. So I popped the trunk to get the dead ermine out of the trunk, but that's not what happens. <laughs> Instead, I pull out a very alive and pissed off ermine. <laughs> And I shared the story of the first and the last time I picked up a hitchhiker in my DeLorean. Well, she came into the car and <laughs> hopped in like it was a Honda Civic. <laughs> she, she made no comment about the fact that this is a DeLorean. Hitchhikers, up next on Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, I'm Rob Prince. One of the many things about Fairbanks, Alaska that struck me as a bit odd when I first moved up here were the hitchhikers. It seems that pastime has all but disappeared from most of the lower 48, but you'll still see it in Fairbanks from time to time. In fact, one time a female student of mine hitchhiked from campus to my house to come to a party I was having, and my first reaction was, how are you not dead? Granted, it's less than a 10-minute drive, but still, that's long enough to get killed. I made sure she had a ride back to campus with one of my well-vetted friends. In today's episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, we have three stories about hitchhikers in Alaska, but only one of them is human. Our first story comes from Deb Horner. She shared this story at our February 2022 live event in Fairbanks. Back in the before times, you all know when that was, when we could do stuff when we wanted to and go where we wanted to. 2008, I was camping down near Donnelly Creek with a friend of mine. We had two dogs, uh, my dog Panda, a husky, and his imperious pain-in-the-ass dog, a Karelian bear dog. So we decided that we were gonna go hike down at Red Rock Canyon, take that gorgeous walk up along the lateral moraine with the Canwell Glacier off to the left, mountains up there. Typical Alaska, stunning beauty. So off we go. It was mid-June, and it was an absolutely gorgeous bluebird day. Not a cloud in the sky. We just had a wonderful hike. Pikas squeaking around and marmots squeaking. Marmots are also called by some whistle pigs because they have this wonderful shriek, sort of like <laughs> So we kept hearing them. And we turned around to go back to get to the vehicles. And as we head into Red Canyon, both dogs start going a little bit on alert. So my friend Brad and I are looking at each other thinking, what's going on? And then we heard, Eep! and it kept going. Eep! So I'm looking around, you know, you got big canyon walls up there, and I thought, well, maybe it's up there climbing around somewhere. Oddly enough, the closer I got to my truck, the louder the squeak got. And all of a sudden, both dogs just boom, run right up. Fortunately, they were on leash, but they go right under the truck, and there is a cacophony of me, 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 me. So we managed to pull the dogs out, 
loaded one into a car and loaded mine into the truck, and of course he's bouncing around in there barking. And then we both went over and looked under the truck. And sure enough, there's Mr. Marmot sitting on top of my spare tire. <laughs> Have any of you ever tried to get the spare tire lowered on a Toyota? <laughs> you got this long rod, you know, about yay big around. It's got this little doohickey on the end that you're supposed to stick into some remote little hole in there and then wind it down, and slowly it comes down. Well, bad design, especially for those of us who are somewhat mechanically disinclined like myself. But I handed it over to the guy and said, here, you do it. <laughs> he couldn't do it. You can't find the thing you're supposed to put the rod into when there's a fat furry marmot sitting on top of your tire, <laughs> squeaking at you. So we're looking at each other, saying, well, maybe we can prod him out of there. So we didn't want to hurt the little guy. So we start just sort of prodding him. And all he does is meep, meep, meep. We're thinking, I'm thinking, I got to go home. It's Sunday. I have to work tomorrow. So Brad, being a guy, says, well, why don't you just try driving the truck up the road out of here and go as fast as you can and then stomp on the brakes? <laughs> Sound like a good idea? That little bugger, he was tenacious. I probably did it three times. No marmot. He's sticking in there like glue. So we had another confab. And I said, well, what's the next bright idea to get him out of here? I don't know. There was only one alternative. He was going to hitchhike to Fairbanks, Alaska, <laughs> approximately 150 miles away on a highway where you routinely go 60, 65, sometimes 70, depending on what kind of driver you are. <laughs> the thought of this hairy little marmot sitting on top of my spare tire, gripping on for dear life, I assumed, flying up the highway, just filled me with a great deal of angst. But I didn't have any alternative because he wasn't getting out of there. So off I go. As I'm driving to Delta, I'm thinking, huh, I'm probably breaking about 15 fish and game laws by doing this, <laughs> transporting wild animals, blah, blah, blah. Get outside of Delta, and you all know where that gas station is on the left as you're driving into town. I need to fuel up. So I drive in, stop the truck, start filling it up, and of course, we hear meep, meep, beep. He's singing away, and there are other people at the gas station. <laughs> and they're kind of going. So of course, I did too, you know, like you do on an airplane. <laughs> Acted totally innocent, filled up, filled up the tank, and off we went. So we finally arrive at my house. And I go down the driveway, and for some reason, I still had some hay left, I think, from bedding that I used for my uh, team dogs when I had a, a team. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe marmots like hay. <laughs> Who knows? So I got him a little hay, put it under the truck, got him a little thing of water, because he had to be thirsty. <laughs> and about the time I'm preparing this repast for the marmot, 
I thought, huh, I have a service appointment at the Toyota place tomorrow morning. <laughs> this is a dilemma. <laughs> so at that point, I thought, well, maybe my neighbor up the road might know something about this because he's worked for Fish and Game for many years. So get my phone out, dial. Cal, do you know how to get a marmot off of your spare tire? And I heard a predictable silence at the other end of the phone. And then Cal says, no, I'm a fish guy. What do I know about that? <laughs> Click. <laughs> so I decided, well, I'll let the marmot have a rest tonight. I'll sleep. I'll get up early in the morning. Maybe he will have climbed down and gone on his merry way. Get up the next morning, crack of dawn, 5 o'clock, tiptoe out to the truck. Look under the truck. The hay hasn't been disturbed. Doesn't look like the water's been disturbed. And as soon as I look under the truck, <laughs> he's still there. So I go and get ready for work. We drive into the Toyota dealer. <laughs> I go in to talk to the techs. And I say, um, I'm here for my 815, but we have a little uh, an issue. <laughs> and he says, oh, what? I said, well, there's a, um, a marmot sitting on top of my spare tire. <laughs> First of all, he just looks at me, and I, I couldn't decide if he was incredulous, didn't know what a marmot was, both. And I said, yeah, yeah, he's, he's out there under, under my truck. So he says huh. And I said, and I can't get the damn spare tire down because of the design, which is crappy. <laughs> so he looks at me, he says, just a minute. And he scurries off into the main office part. Next thing you know, the manager's out and he's got his camera with him. <laughs> he literally goes out to my truck. He sort of crawls under with his little camera, snaps a shot, of course, all you can see are little beady eyes and teeth. That's it. I don't know whatever became of that photo, but if it went to Toyota Central, they must have gotten a laugh out of that. So I said to the manager and the tech, I said, look, why don't you come over with me to Fish and Game, and you can get the stupid tire down because you're a tech guy with Toyota, and then the little marmot can go on his merry way. So they said, oh, that sounds like a good, decent idea. So we load up, off we go to fishing game. As luck would have it, as I'm parking, here comes Cal going into the office. <laughs> the marmot is squeaking away. Cal waves and says, Deb, I'd love your new car alarm system. <laughs> I really didn't need that at that point, but... So the plan was back the truck up to the field, you know, all those nice fields out there, and the marmot, once we got him down, would trundle off into the fields on his merry way. So finally, the tech gets the tire down, right? Marmot still sitting there. He still doesn't want to leave. I mean, he has found his marmot condo, and for some reason, he wants to stay there. We tried prodding him. He just did not want to leave. And he was a fat little bugger. I'd, I'd wager he was on the large side for marmots. 
Finally, he waddles off the tire. We expect him to go that way into the fields. Oh, no, no. He turns that way, heads straight for College Road, and I'm thinking, ah, he's going to be squished. I swear, he gets to the crosswalk. He looks both ways. <laughs> Across the road he goes, and down into noise slew, never to be seen again. So you ask, what goes through an animal's mind? Well, according to Link Olson, who is curator of mammals at the museum and also the to-go guy for anything you ever wanted to know about marmots, they are notorious hitchhikers. <laughs> they will, they've hitchhiked all over the place, and apparently it's, it's actually a conservation issue because they have very specific habitat areas and so they, they hitch a ride and they go off into these other areas. But, you know, even if he was a hitchhiker, I can't help but think that poor marmot had to have been saying to himself, WTF, what did I do? Deb Horner, she shared that story at our February 2022 live event in Fairbanks. This is Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, the Hitchhikers episode. I'm Rob Prince. Hitchhikers in Alaska come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, but at no other time in my life have I heard of a hitchhiker starting their ride dead and ending it very much alive. But that's what happened for Cat Betters. She shared this incredible story of the resurrected hitchhiker at our November 2015 live event in Fairbanks. One quick note about this story, it was recorded back when we had a live band on stage during our performances, and so that's what you hear in the background. So my story actually takes place in the summertime, so um, it's about five or six years ago, and I was um, driving home, and I was going up and over Belaine Hill, and as I was descending into the valley, I saw something um, little and brown laying in the middle of the road. My first thought was it was a squirrel. You know, we've all seen one of those, so I thought I'd just keep driving. But as I got closer, I realized that, in fact, it was an ermine. Now, for those of you who don't know what an ermine is, they're also called a short-tailed weasel. They're in the weasel family. They're um, about 7 to 10 inches long and very cylindrical. They look as though they could probably run through a paper towel tube. Their legs are situated way back in the caboose, and the front legs are way up front, so that when they run, they lope along like a slinky. They're white in the winter with a little black tail, and in the summer, they're brown with a um, white underbody, and that's what I saw laying in the road. Now, they're not particularly uncommon or rare or endangered or anything, but they're pretty elusive, and you never really see them anywhere, so it was really disheartening to see it laying in the road. And also, they are terribly, terribly cute. They're so cute, it hurts. You literally want to squeeze the cute out of them. So do yourself a favor tonight when you go home and Google pictures of ermines. You won't be disappointed. So it was even doubly more disappointing to see it lying in the road. But at the same time, I was also, um, at this time, I was um, dating a man who works at Fish and Game in the Education and Outreach Department. He's a biologist and a naturalist and a tracker. We'll call him Mike. Um, 
he's, he's over there. He can verify the second half of the story for me. So at the time we were dating, the next day also happened to be his birthday. So I was like, woohoo, there's an ermine laying in the middle of the road. Early birthday present. <laughs> Number one girlfriend. So for those of you who don't know Mike in the audience, you probably think this is quite macabre and weird, which it is. But if you know Mike, you know that he'd be, this is something he'd actually be really, really excited about. So I decided I'm going to get him the ermine. And I pull over on the side of the road. And I pop the trunk to get my Ziploc bag out. Because when you date a biologist, you have things in your car like Ziploc bags latex gloves, because you never know what you're going to find on the side of the road on the drive home, case in point. So while I'm doing this, another car pulls up directly across the road from me, and my first instinct was, <gasps> he wants my ermine. <laughs> Yeah, so as if any other rational human being would be driving around town looking for roadkill to bring home. But since that's what I was doing, I kind of got my hackles up and I started walking very quickly out into the road to get the ermine. And as I'm doing this, the gentleman gets out of the car and he's this big, burly dude. And uh, he yells over to me, do you know what that is laying in the road? And he looks really distraught and actually on the verge of tears. And he goes, I said, yeah, it's an ermine. And he goes, well, I've never seen one before. He said, I'm the one who hit it. He goes, I feel terrible. Do you think there's any way we could take it to the veterinary clinic that's at the top of the Blaine Hill? At which point I'm actually holding the ermine in my hand. Now, if this thing was going to be okay, I wouldn't be holding it. And also, it's flopped over my hand like a wet noodle. There's blood coming out of its nose, and even though I can feel a faint heartbeat, this thing's a goner. And I tell him as much, and I said, hey, but it's going to get a second life in the Education Outreach Department at Fishing Game. It'll get taxidermied and put into their collection so people can learn about ermines and how cute they are. And he doesn't seem all that happy with this outcome, but he doesn't try to take the ermine away from me, and he gets in the car and drives home. Me, I'm still standing in the middle of the road, so I start walking over to my car and I put the ermine inside the Ziploc bag and I zip it nice and tight shut and I go to my car and I put it inside of a box that's in my trunk so it doesn't slide around, close the trunk, turn around and drive home. I'm home for about, oh, half an hour when I remembered there was something I forgot to do in town. So back into town I go and I think, well, while I'm doing that, I'll swing by Fish and Game and drop off Mike's birthday present early. Won't he be excited? I get to Fish and Game. He's not there, but everyone else that I know is. So I spend the next half hour talking to everybody when finally someone says, oh, hey, I saw Mike out in the parking lot. So I'm perfect. Like, that's where he needs to be. That's where the ermine is. So I run out there. I call him over, sweetie, come on over. I got something for you. It's an early birthday present. He comes over. I said, but you got to close your eyes. He dutifully closes his eyes. So I pop the trunk to get the dead ermine out of the trunk. But that's not what happens. <laughs> Instead, I pull out a very alive and pissed off ermine. <laughs> this poor, adorable little critter has 
steamed up the entire inside of the bag. It's pooped in there, it's peed in there, and it is frantically trying to crawl its way out. I feel horrible. I, first of all, I can't even believe what I'm seeing, that it's alive. And secondly, I can't bear to look it in there a second longer. I'm not a screamer. I start screaming and running towards the fields at Creamer's Field to let it out of the bag. I can't, I just can't bear it anymore. I'm running and screaming. Mike opens his eyes just in time to see my hind end running to the fields, dangling something. And I'm screaming so loudly that a crowd has started to gather. There's like four or five other workers outside. They all come running over. I get to the edge of the field. Mike catches up to me and knows what it is right away inside this hermetically sealed little ermine in here. And just as I'm about to open it, he yells, stop, no, you can't open it here. It's not its habitat. <laughs> yeah. Habitat, schmabitat. I'm still freaking out. And I explained to him that we are not walking another 10 minutes with this ermine in a bag to get it to its habitat down by the pond and by the woods. He very quickly realizes, I cannot be reasoned with. <laughs> There's no reasoning with me. So he acquiesces and we decide to let it go right where it is. And I remember there was this moment where there was like a palpable silence. We're letting this wild critter out of this bag and nobody knows what's going to happen. And there's just like, everyone's just staring and wondering what's going to happen. And I remember thinking at one minute, Ooh, what if it runs up my pant leg or something, you know? Like, nobody knows. So I, we get down and we spin the bag around so that the head of the ermine's gonna come out the opening and um, get ready to open it. And I think this thing's just gonna come running out to fresh air and freedom, right? That's not what happens. It turns right back around and runs to the other end of the inside of the bag and starts trying to claw its way out. And I'm like, ah! So we spin the bag back around and think, oh, this time it'll go out. Nope, not having it. Runs straight back into the back end of the bag again, trying to claw its way out. Finally, we're standing there. We're like, you know, I think we can outwit this thing. And it only weighs like a pound and a half. So we just shake it out. And there goes Mike's birthday present, slinking full speed across the field. And I swear to you, it's briefly stopped, looked at us. I'm certain that it scowled, mostly at me, put its feet down and just ran, never to be seen again. So we're all standing there and everybody's just kind of absorbing the absurdity of what just happened. Mike finally breaks the silence and says, so, Cat, how did you go about getting a live vermin into a Ziploc bag? <laughs> it's a valid question. <laughs> so I surmise pretty much what's happened up till now. And he goes, so, let me see if I've got this right. It got hit by a car, put into a Ziploc, into a box, in a trunk, driven around for an hour, and when it finally came to, it was 10 miles away from where it started its day. <laughs> I said, yeah, that pretty much sums it up. He said, you know, I could have you cited and ticketed for transporting wildlife without a permit. I said, yeah, honey, you do that. <laughs> Thank you. Stay warm. Cat Betters. She shared that story at our November 2015 live event in Fairbanks.
So what would you do if you were hitchhiking and suddenly a DeLorean pulled up to give you a ride? Probably freak out a little, maybe wonder if Doc Brown had just arrived from the future to whisk you away to fix some problem with the space-time continuum? Well, either of those would be pretty normal reactions. However, neither of those were the reactions I got when I picked up a hitchhiker in Fairbanks in my DeLorean a few years ago. Here's that story. I purchased my DeLorean in the summer of 2016, and one of the things that crossed my mind after I bought it was how cool it would be to pick up a hitchhiker in the DeLorean, because it'd be just an amazing experience for them, an amazing experience for me, and they'd be less likely to kill me because we're in this obvious car, everybody's looking at us, and so seemed like a win-win all around. The trick, though, was finding the right hitchhiker because, you know, nothing personal against hitchhikers, but they do kind of come in different flavors, <laughs> you could say. Finding one that seemed less likely to do me harm and do the car harm was the key to making this work. In the summer of 2018, I was driving along Farmer's Loop in Fairbanks when I spotted a female hitchhiker with her back to traffic and her thumb out, and I thought, hmm, well, it's a woman, probably less likely to kill me. And from the back she looked pretty normal pretty well put together so i thought here is my opportunity so i pulled over the delorean and i waited for her to hop in waited for the excitement and thought this is going to be an incredible interaction an instant friend we're gonna have a lot of fun things to talk about what an incredible experience well she came into the car and <laughs> hopped in like it was a honda civic <laughs> she, she made no comment about the fact that this is a DeLorean and if you're not familiar with the DeLorean it's basically the back to the future car that immediately made, <laughs> made me quite nervous I asked her where she was going and I couldn't really tell what she said so I decided to just drive straight and see how long this ride was going to last if it was going to be about 10 minutes up the road or if we were going to drive all the way up to Prudhoe Bay I tried to make a little conversation with her, but she wasn't super chatty. <laughs> I asked her how her day was going, and she said fine. And that was about it. And that was the end of my conversation skills. I really had nothing else <laughs> to go from there. I had kind of banked on the car being a large part of the conversation, and it, it never came up once. Not once in this ride did she say anything about the car which put me a little bit on my back foot in terms of conversation. At one point, she did ask me if I had any weed, which in a way I was kind of honored by because I think of myself as kind of a stiff-looking guy who's not exactly one people would think of as ever having weed. So I was a little bit flattered that she thought I'd be the kind of guy who might happen to have a little weed around. Of course, I didn't, and <laughs> I also cannot think of any other place I would rather not smoke weed than inside my precious 1982 DeLorean. I think I'd rather smoke it in the middle of a maternity ward in the hospital than smoke, <laughs> smoke weed <laughs> in that car. So I unfortunately had to let her down with the information I did not have any weed, and we continued the rest of the drive in silence. Thank goodness for me, she did not have to go far, and so we only drove about five more minutes before she indicated that it was going to be a right turn coming up here pretty soon. So we took the right turn onto a gravel road, which, yeah, isn't my favorite place to take the DeLorean, but it's okay. It's seen its fair share of gravel roads. And we started slowly going down this road, and she said, oh, it's the third house on the left. So I thought, great, we're almost there. And we come up to the third house on the left, and she's like, oh, no, it's not this. It's, it's the fifth house. So we go a few more. She's like, no, it's not this one. It's a few more down. And that's where I began to realize, oh... This is how I get killed. 
She takes me onto this kind of nondescript side gravel road and sort of lures me down further and further, saying it's just one more house down, one more house down until we're all the way at the end of the road where she shoots me and takes my money. I grew more and more nervous the further down this road we went and the less she seemed to know about where exactly it was that she wanted to go. Finally, we got to the house that she claimed was the one that she wanted (laughs) to be at and I pulled in and she hopped out of that car like she'd been doing it every day for her whole life. Getting out of the DeLorean is not that simple of a thing. You have to lift this handle and then give it a shove so that the door goes out. Basically, I have to give people instructions on how to get out every single time. I've yet to meet too many people who know how to get out of it without any sort of tips. This woman hopped out of the DeLorean like she'd been doing it every day of her life. Said goodbye. I'm not even sure she said thank you. It doesn't really matter. (laughs) And she went into the house. There was no comment from anyone inside. There was no come out and look at this car. This was just another ride for this woman that would blend in with all the other rides she'd had in her life. I turned the DeLorean around and pulled away, grateful that this had not gone as badly as now I realized it could have gone. (laughs) And I realized an important lesson that day, that just because something's about guaranteed to make for a great story doesn't mean you should do it. That was me, Rob Prince, sharing that story with you for the first time right now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska, the Hitchhiker's Edition. Today's episode was edited by myself, Rob Prince, story consultation by Lori Newfeld. Remember, these are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince.